It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now the youth that have been paying attention to me for the past two and a half years are asking one question right now, and that is, Lachlan, what is the context of this passage? Great question, youth. I really rate that question. You see, context is one of the most important factors in trying to figure out and interpret God's word. Now, the important context you need to know for Daniel chapter 6 starts in around 600 BC. You see, in 600 BC, the Babylonian Empire came into Israel, came into Jerusalem, destroyed, sacked, and burned the holy city of God. Now, all the Jews that actually survived this traumatic event were then taken as slaves to the Babylonian Empire, where, over the course of many, many decades, some of them slowly rose to positions of influence and power within that empire. Now, Daniel is one of those Jews. And in Daniel's chapter one, Daniel chapter 1 through to 5, we read the story of his adventures in Babylon, of how he survived and thrived in this new place. However, in 539 BC, the Babylonian Empire fell to another empire. This was the Medo-Persian Empire, an empire ruled by a coalition of the Medes and the Persians. And this empire took control of Babylon, and even though Daniel had faithfully served the previous administration, he so distinguished himself as an excellent administrator that this new empire decided to employ his services. So that's the timing and the placing of Daniel chapter 6. However, as we locate Daniel 6 in time, we hit a very small snag. And here's the very small snag. Outside of the Bible, we don't ever read of anyone called Darius the Mede, which feels problematic. Except that it's not, don't worry about it. You see... It was very, very common for ancient rulers to have different names within different parts of their kingdoms. And so there's two prime candidates for who Darius the Mede is. He's either Cyrus the Great or he's Ugbaro the Conqueror. You see, in 539 BC, Ugbaro the Conqueror came and captured Babylon on behalf of Cyrus and then ruled as its governor for a significant period of time before Cyrus then decided to set up his capital in Babylon. And so Darius the Mede is the local name for either Cyrus or Ugbaro. Those are the two historical characters that Darius could be. Both of those men are men who ruled Babylon and they held a huge amount of power. They are people that needed to be feared and respected and that is the character we're meeting here at the beginning of Daniel chapter 6. And one of Darius's very first actions was to reorganize this newly conquered kingdom. So he appointed 120 satraps, which are local rulers, to help him rule this new kingdom. So if Darius is the prime minister, then a satrap is like the leader of a local council. So these are the local councillors for Mortdale, where I live. These are effectively the satraps of Anthony Albanese just so you understand what's going on. Now, Darius didn't want to have to deal with 120 satraps, 
And so he set up an extra layer of government, which was three administrators who would look after approximately 40 satraps each. But Daniel was doing such an excellent job as one of these three administrators that Darius decided that he had the capability to run the entire kingdom. This would, like, this would be like Daniel being promoted to deputy prime minister so that Anthony Albanese can take a well-deserved break while Daniel does all of the work for him. So that is the context of Daniel chapter 6. And what we see is that Daniel has risen to a place of prominence. And now we're going to hear the next bit of the story. Dylan. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for the charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, perfects, satraps, advisers, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict that, and, and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown in the lion's den. Now, your majesty in the decree and put in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. So as Daniel distinguished himself as an excellent administrator, all the other administrators and all the other satraps wanted to stop his rise to power so that they could have the power instead. However, despite having 122 other people looking for some type of flaw or fault in Daniel, they simply could not find any corruption whatsoever. This is what makes Daniel stand out from the crowd. This is what makes him excel amongst his peers because he did not abuse his position of power for personal gain. His opponents were hoping to find a big scandal hiding just under the surface. They were hoping to find fraud or theft or assault or murder or extortion or perjury, but he was guilty of nothing. Daniel was the perfect administrator. And so instead, they turned to his religious beliefs. Now, Daniel was a really pious Jew. He followed the laws of God well and faithfully. And he may have been an excellent administrator for the Medo-Persian Empire, but his true allegiance was to God. And so these 122 leaders devised a plot. They suggested to Darius that he, would, that he, the ruler of the land, be made the sole object of worship for the next 30 days. Now they claimed they had the full support of everyone for this, but clearly they at the very least hadn't chatted to Daniel about it. Now their proposal was that all prayer be addressed to Darius in recognition of his tremendous power. They were trying to elevate him from not just a political force, but into a spiritual power as well. The penalty for rebelling against this law was to be death. 
the method of execution thrown into a lion's den. Now, Darius was no doubt flattered by this proposal, and the fact that all of his advisors seemed to agree that it was a good idea meant that he didn't even hesitate. He signed it into law. However, we'll see later in the story that the Medo-Persian view of the law was that once something was written in the law, it could not be revoked. You see, they saw their law as something that was true for all time and perfect. Once something was written, it could not be taken away. Now, there are two pieces of irony in this proposal. The first piece of irony is that the administrators who urged Darius to do this law were unfaithful to Darius. They were working against his intentions, and yet the law seemed to lift up Darius onto a pedestal. The second bit of irony is that by lifting Darius up onto a pedestal, he was actually trapped. He couldn't undo the law he had written, even if he wanted to. And so rather than making him the supreme ruler of the land for the next 30 days, it trapped him. And so this is the situation we see. This was the perfect plot to stop the prominence of Daniel. And now we'll have the next reading from Sav. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So this section suggests that this law became public knowledge really, really quickly. However, Daniel, as soon as he discovered about this law, the first thing he did was to go home, as he usually did, to go upstairs and to pray to his God. Now, whenever I read this story, I often think, Daniel, how dumb are you? You've just heard about this law and you've gone and stood next to a giant window that, like, overlooks the entire city and you've prayed. However, that's not an accurate picture, I'm sorry to tell you. You see, windows in this part of the world at that time period were really small and really high. You see, by being that way, it meant the breeze could come through, but the heat didn't. It also was a way of stopping robbers from breaking into their houses. As well as this, most of the windows of this time period had like really fancy lattice work across it. Again, the breeze could come through, but the heat wouldn't. And so the only way that Daniel's opponents could have found him praying was by intruding upon his personal space. So this wasn't just Daniel being silly and praying in public, this was him doing his usual activity and being spied upon. The text also says that Daniel liked to pray at this window because it faced towards Jerusalem, which at first confused me. Was Daniel superstitious? Was Jerusalem to the Jews sort of like Mecca is to the Muslims, where you pray towards it? Not at all. You see, in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel, we see that one of Daniel's regular prayers was for the restoration of Jerusalem. Remember, at this point, it had been burned and sacked. It was a pile of rubble. But one of Daniel's prayers is that one day God will restore it. And in Daniel chapter 9, if we had time to go to that part of the passage, we would see that God gives Daniel a vision promising that one day the city would be restored and that a saviour would come to that city to redeem his people, to save them from their sins. I wonder who that might be. Yes, it is clearly Jesus. 
But we're going to return to Daniel chapter 6 just for now. What is Daniel praying for? The very first thing Daniel prays for is a prayer of thanks. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was told that praying would lead to my death, I don't know if thanksgiving would be the very first thing I say. But here is the faith of a man who, with full confidence in God, thanks God for everything he has already done for him. Then he prays for help and for guidance. You see, that's the first thing I would have prayed for. But for Daniel, if we had read Daniel chapters 1 to 5, we would see that he was never going to offer a prayer to Darius. For how many years he was this? He's 80 years old at this point. 66 years of his life, he has been out of Jerusalem in Babylon, but still being faithful to his God. He was never, ever going to pray to Darius. And we see that in his character instantly. So he prays for help, and he would need that help because his opponents, by intruding in his personal space, found him praying against the plot that was started because of his prominence. And now we're going to read the next bit of the story. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answers, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, who you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation may not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. So Daniel's opponents go straight to the king. They go straight to Darius, and they accuse Daniel of breaking the law. Now, upon hearing this, Darius is actually greatly distressed. Daniel was his right-hand man, but he had broken this new law. And, as was the Medo-Persian custom, this law cannot be repealed. So the king spent until sundown trying to figure out a legal way around this situation. But he was unable to. And so, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den as punishment for breaking this law. Now, as Daniel was thrown in to what seemed to be certain death, Darius says, may your God, who you serve continually, rescue you. We see here that Darius knew Daniel's devotion to God and also that Darius desired Daniel to be saved. However, so that Daniel could not escape from the lion's den, a stone was placed over the mouth of the den, which was then sealed with a royal seal. This seal would have been a piece of clay that Darius then would have stuck his ring into with the royal seal on it to inform all that passed 
that should they remove that stone, should that seal be broken, then they too would suffer the consequences. Then he spends an incredibly long, sleepless sleepless night worrying about the fate of Daniel. What a cliffhanger for us as an audience. Hopefully this is the value of reading this story in small bits. What is going to happen to Daniel, who has just been prosecuted for praying against the plot that was started because of his prominence? Let's find out. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you've served continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. It is now dawn. The king rushes to the lion's den and he calls out to see if Daniel is alive. And to his surprise and to his delight, Daniel responds, he is alive. Now, we read this story in a nice, safe Australian context. The only time we've ever seen a lion is in the zoo. However, lions are terrifying creatures designed to kill. Those fangs up there They're designed to shred through skin, muscle, and bone and sever the spinal cord. A male lion can weigh up to 200 kilograms, but when it jumps on its prey, it crushes them. They mark their territory by roaring together, and their roars can be heard eight kilometers away. Some animals, including humans, are stunned by a lion's roar at close range. These are terrifying creatures, and Daniel has just spent a whole night with them. Now, because of how terrifying and awe-inspiring a lion is, ancient kings would often keep them and breed them to hunt, to demonstrate their superiority over all of their fellow men, over all of creation, and in line with their different gods. So these lions that they bred to hunt were often kept in a pit, They were also usually underfed so that they were even more dangerous. A lion can eat up to 40 kilograms of meat every day. Some of our year sevens only weigh 40 kilograms. And Daniel, who is 80 years old at this point, probably didn't weigh much more than 40 kilograms either. By all rights, Daniel should have been torn to shreds. But he wasn't. He wasn't dead He was alive and well. Overjoyed, Darius helps up Daniel from the pit, realising that while everyone in the kingdom had been praying to him as a king and as a god, Daniel served the true God, who actually had the power to control circumstances and deliver those who trust him. Something Darius had been completely unable to do, even though he tried with all of his might 
to deliver Daniel. Then Darius ordered that Daniel's accusers and their families be thrown into the lion's den. Now, the text doesn't say whether God thinks this is an act of justice or whether God thinks this is right, but Darius obviously thinks that this is an act of justice and he throws in these deceivers, these people who conspired against his right-hand man, Daniel. And as proof that these lions weren't just a particularly friendly bunch of lions or that someone had snuck in the previous day and fed them so they weren't hungry for Daniel, they tear Daniel's accusers to shreds. But I don't want to end on that negative note. I want to end with joy because Daniel has been preserved after his prosecution for praying against the plot that was started because of his prominence. Let's finish the story. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and the people of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed, his dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Darius had been prayed to, but now he issues a pronouncement that everyone should live in awe of Daniel's God, not of him. This is an amazing turnaround on Darius's part. He was a pagan elevating a Jewish God to enormous heights. Darius says that Daniel's God is alive, unlike the dead gods of the Medes and the Persians. He says that Daniel's God is eternal, that his kingdom is indestructible, that he intervenes in people's affairs, and he delivers those who trust in him, that he works by miraculous power to perform his will, including this miraculous delivery of Daniel. Such a God is truly to be reverenced and worshipped. So, in spite of the opposition of the satraps and the administrators, Daniel was honoured and thrived during the reign of Darius. Now, to loop us way back to our previous conversation about who Darius actually is, that final sentence can be either translated as Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, who is also known as Cyrus the Persian, or it could be translated as during the reign of Darius and then the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Because after Ugbaru's death, Cyrus sets up shop in Babylon as its key ruler. And so once again, Darius can be either people. Just thought I'd clear that up. But we have finished the story of Daniel 6, which is that a pronouncement is made because Daniel has been preserved after his prosecution for praying against the plot that was started because of his prominence. Now, this story of God at work happened more than two and a half millennia ago. So what are we in the 21st century, meant to learn from it. Well, hopefully Mez is back in the room by now. Is he? Yeah, there he is. Well done. I want you in particular to pay attention to this bit because you've just stood before this church family and said that you love the Lord Jesus and want to follow him all the days of your life. Here are some ways that I think you, but hopefully all of us as well, can continue to do that from Daniel chapter 6. 
The first lesson that we learn from Daniel chapter 6 is that God is in control. You see, to Darius' astonishment and relief, God intervened to preserve Daniel. Daniel was shielded by the power of God, not from danger, but within danger. It was God who was in control. When I was at Bible college, I had a lecturer who told me that every chapter of the book of Daniel has the same main message, which is that God is in control. So even when everything feels out of control, this passage wants us to know that God is in control. Now, this is emphasized by Darius' decree at the end of the chapter, where he declares that the God of Daniel is a God who saves. He also emphasizes that this God is alive, his kingdom will go on forever, outlasting Babylon, outlasting Persia, outlasting Greece, outlasting Rome, outlasting America, outlasting China, outlasting Russia, outlasting Australia, outlasting every single kingdom or nation that there ever was or will be. No matter what time or place you live in or will live in, God is in control. And if God is in, res- in control, what should our response be? It should be the same as Daniel, who after hearing about this brand new law that was going to end him being dead, what does he do? He goes and prays. He prays in thanks for all that God has already done, and he prays for assistance in the time coming. Prayer unleashes the power of God to do his will. The Apostle Paul tells us this about prayer. God is able to do far more and in far more abundance than all that we ask or think. Jesus says to his disciples, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you received it and it will be yours. Now, you see, whenever we pray, God listens. And as the one in control of everything, he also acts. And to be honest with you, as you go through life, there will be a bunch of situations where all you can do is pray. In 1940, Vincent and Margaret Crossett were missionaries in mainland China. They struggled against poverty and paganism in a remote village in order to tell others about Jesus. The work was slow and difficult, but after much sacrifice, a small church was established. The church was no larger than one of our small pod groups at youth. But just as this happened, the communist takeover of China forced all missionaries to leave China. The Crossets obviously hated to leave. Their little community of believers hardly seemed ready to face what was about to come. How could this little church survive? From the world's perspective, There was nothing that the Crossets could do. But they saw through the eyes of faith that their God was faithful to those who honour him. So they continued to do their duty. Even though the missionaries were chased out, their prayers were not. For nearly 40 years, the Crossets prayed with their window open towards China. They dutifully prayed in faith that God would preserve his church. The Crossets heard nothing of this Chinese church for 40 years but still they faithfully prayed for God to be victorious in the church they had left behind. Finally, when the walls of China came down, as the political climate changed and people were allowed back in, 
the Crossets returned to the village where they had left this tiny, struggling group of believers. There was no small church anymore. Instead, that one Bible study had grown to a church of 4,000 people and had planted a dozen other churches of at least 1,000 people. All the Crossets did was pray with their window open towards China. And the God of Daniel, who is alive and well and in total control, acted. So tonight be reminded that God is in control, so pray to him. The second lesson I think we need to take away from Daniel chapter 6 is that God's laws are better. Now, as I read through a Bible passage for the first time, one of the things I like to do is look at what the repeated words are. You often get a really good sense for what the main message of the passage is just by looking for the repeated ideas or words. And as I read through Daniel 6, I was struck by how many times the word law was said. You see, this is what is really happening as the tension in our passage, is we have a tension between God's law and the law of the Medes and the Persians. On this hand, we have Darius, ruler over all the people of the earth, nations, languages, and enforcer of the law of the Medes and the Persians. On this hand, we have Yahweh, creator of the heavens and earth, enforcer of the Jewish law. It is up to Daniel to choose between these two laws, and he does not hesitate for even a second. Now, both of these laws are meant to reflect the wills of those who create them. Darius's law ideally reflects what he wants, and God's law ideally reflects what God wants. However, what we see is that Darius's law binds him to a path he does not want to take. There are consequences to the laws that he initiates that he cannot foresee. He would have loved to have changed his mind, but he could not. He was not above the law. Is God above the law? That's a more difficult question, because in one sense, yes, God is above everything. He's not bound by anything, even his own laws. He can do whatever he wants. However, this is a misleading answer, because unlike Darius, God's law is always the perfect expression of God's character because he knows himself perfectly. It's also the perfect expression of his will because he perfectly knows the consequences of his actions and pronouncements. This is why Psalm 19 can declare this about God's law. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the law are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. The way of God is better. The way of Jesus is better. The way that those laws, their ways or laws, may not always be our preference, but they are life-giving laws to us and those around us. But how do we, as people who try to follow Jesus well, respond to his laws? Well, as I said, it's Old Testament term at youth, and so I just thought I would compare myself to the Ten Commandments. I create idols of things. I know that I put other things above God in the way that I act. I know that I work either too hard and don't take the rest commanded in the Ten Commandments, 
or I'm too lazy and take way too much rest. I know I don't always honour my parents. And while I have never committed murder or adultery, I have definitely been full of anger and lust. I haven't stolen anything for a while. Yay, Lachlan. But I've definitely lied and coveted what others have. There is a lot to fix in my life. There's a lot of ways I'm not living by God's laws, which we've just seen is superior to every other way of living. I suspect everyone here is in a similar boat. Tonight, I would challenge you to pick one way that you are not living up to God's laws and figure out a way to put that into practice into your life. If you are here with absolutely no idea about what God would like you to do or what his laws even look like, please continue to join us here at church weekly as we continue to learn about what God wants for us in this life, about the life-giving way he wants us to live. The third lesson from Daniel 3, we're almost there. It's a three-point sermon, I promise. Here's the third point. Following God involves a cost, except I wanted to keep the L theme going. So following God involves a loss. While Daniel doesn't say anything in this story, as he's thrown to the lions, we can imagine him uttering these words from chapter 3. The God I serve is able to save me, and he will rescue me from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, I want you to know, O king, that I will not stop praying to my God. Daniel was prepared to pay any cost to follow God. Now, preaching the cost of discipleship is not something I regularly do. My usual style is get people over the line and then let them know that, oh, by the way, God wants you to change some things in your life. But that is not the way that Jesus preached. You see, Jesus made it clear the sacrifices that must be involved in order to follow him. And many turned away because of these sacrifices Jesus asked of them. In Luke 14, Jesus says, Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Mezes made a commitment tonight to follow Jesus and to carry that cross, along with whatever cost or loss that may include. Like the society Daniel lived in, following God may at some point incur a big loss for Mez in this life. But he has stood here tonight and said he will pay any cost because he knows what Jesus has paid for him. We read from Romans 6 earlier in the service, and I want to read it again for us. Don't you know that all of us who are baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We therefore were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we've been united with him in death, in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. In Jesus, the cost of sin has been paid for. The consequences of death has been paid. As we baptised Mez, we symbolised him uniting with Christ in death under the water and in resurrection new life as he came out of the water. Jesus paid it all, and now Mez has died to his old sinful ways. He'll mess that up on occasions, I'm sure, as we all do. 
but the cost of discipleship he now pays is one that must sacrifice his own way. That is the biggest cost, is that we must now sacrifice the things that we desire, sacrifice the ways we want to live, and instead live the way that Jesus wants us to live. Continuing in Romans 6, we see this so clearly. If we died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let any sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're no longer under the law but under grace. This is the calling that all of us have as Christians. But sometimes paying this cost requires courage. Where did Daniel get his courage to pay this cost? His courage came from his faith in the living God. And we have an even stronger basis for our faith than Daniel had. Why? Because since the time of Daniel, Jesus has come into the world. We no longer have our hope based on a future moment. We have our hope based on a past event, the death and resurrection of Jesus. We don't look forward to the coming of God's Messiah. I mean, we are keen for his second coming, but we primarily look back to the cross. But should we even follow Daniel's example? Well, we know that Jesus' closest followers, his closest friends, the apostles, we know that they did follow his example. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and John have been imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And upon their release, what do they do immediately? They go and preach the gospel again. The authorities come before them again and tell them to stop. And they respond, we must obey God rather than men. They were prepared to pay any cost. It is my prayer that all of us tonight would be prepared to pay the cost of discipleship because Jesus has paid far, far more. So what are you going to take away from this sermon? You can take away the six Ps of Daniel 6 which is that due to Daniel's prominence, a plot was made against him. In response, Daniel prayed, which led him to being prosecuted, but due to God's intervention, he was preserved, and then Darius made a pronouncement about Daniel's God. If you can remember all six, well done. Youth, I'll buy you a pizza if you can remember all six. Or you can take away the three lessons from Daniel 6, which is that God is in control, including over lions, So pray. God's laws are better, so obey. Following God involves a loss, but Jesus has already paid it all for us. Please join me in prayer as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, thank you that you died for our sins. Thank you for the way that we can enter into relationship with you. Thank you for all of those in this room that know you. I pray that we would be prepared to pay any cost. We would be prepared to live your way. Thank you for the way that you are in total control. In Jesus' name, amen.